Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hi friends and welcome to another episode from me, the Asian Madness Podcast. Sorry about the last episode being a bit late. If you follow me on Instagram, you may have noticed that I was off at CrimeCon. It's basically a convention about, well, crime. This is my fourth CrimeCon and it was fantastic, despite COVID. I highly recommend attending, as you get to meet amazing speakers, hear about new stories, meet other podcasters, and you definitely get to make new friends. Anyway, that was my weekend, so enough about me. This week's topic was actually requested by multiple listeners, so forgive me if I have trouble naming every single one of you. I have a lot of listeners from the Philippines, and many of you requested that I cover this, so of course, I had to cover it. I had heard of this case before I actually started looking into it, and turns out it was a lot worse than I expected it to be. That seems like a common theme when I research podcast cases, it seems. I would like to thank Derek from Stories After Dark podcast for answering some of my questions and for providing a very useful report for this awful case. This took place in the year 2009, and although it's been more than a decade since, Many people still feel like justice was never served. Let's begin. Even for a country long gripped by violence, it was a shocking crime. On the morning of November 23, 2009, a convoy of vehicles carrying journalists and members of a political family were on their way to an electoral event in Maguindano province in the southern Philippines. They never reached their destination. A gang of armed men stopped and forced them to a hilltop in the village of Masalay. There they were repeatedly shot. 58 people were killed over a period of hours and buried in a mass grave. 32 were journalists. Others were members of the Mangudadatu family, political rivals to the powerful Ampatuan clan. Before we get to the actual details of what took place, we have to dip into a bit of the geographical and political climate in the Philippines. As a quick refresher, the Philippines is made up of thousands of islands, and the country is also divided into three major island clusters, the southern one being Mindanao. 
The one most people are familiar with would probably be the island group called Luzon, since that's the largest island and also where the capital city Manila is located. So the island Mindanao is divided into six administrative regions, one of them being Bangsamoro Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao. As you can probably tell by the name, this region is an autonomous region and was once known as the Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao, which is home to many Muslim Filipinos. This was a thing way before the Spanish colonizers even set foot in the Philippines. To narrow it down even more, in this autonomous region, we then have the province of Maguindanao, which is the location for today's case. So that's a bit of background on the location we will be looking at today. As for politics, well, that's a lot more complicated, but since we will mostly be looking at post-2000 things, hopefully it won't be too confusing for those of you who are not familiar with this topic. Allow me to introduce to you Andal Ampatuan Sr., the patriarch of the Ampatuan political family in Maguindanao province. He belonged to the political party called LACA CMD, which stands for Christian Muslim Democrats. He had been involved in politics basically his whole life, and during the time Ferdinand E. Marcos was president between 1965 and 1986, Ampatuan Sr. was appointed as mayor and officer in charge of the municipality of Maganoy, but known as the municipality of Sharif Aguac nowadays, which, interestingly, was named after Ampatuan Sr.'s father. In 1988, Ampatuan Sr. was elected as the mayor for the next 10 years, and once that gig was up, he won another series of elections and thus became the governor, which was quite a step up. This political clan was very well known and had strong ties with President Gloria Macabagal Arroyo, who was president from 2001 to 2010. In a way, the president and the Ampatuan clan helped each other, they would make sure their region voted for her during the presidential elections, and in turn, she would continue to support the Ampatuan clan in their endeavors. President Gloria Macabagal Arroyo apparently got hella votes from the Maguindanao region and easily dominated the polls in 2004. Of course, you cannot escape the whole voter fraud and tampering rumors, which could or could not be true. She also signed off an executive order while she was in office due to an assassination attempt on her buddy, Ampatua Sr., and this executive order allowed, quote, local officials and the police to deputize local militia to aid in the fight against insurgents, end quote. This basically means that the Ampatuan clan were allowed to have their own military, and I assume that would include a lot of threatening civilians and whatnot. I mean, even if I wasn't outright threatened, it's kind of impossible to not feel like it's an intimidation tactic. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the Mpatuan clan was close to the then-president, and they very much enjoyed having all this power in the Maguindanao region. This is obviously a rather simplified look at the kind of behind-the-scenes that was happening in this specific region. And I don't really want to go too in-depth with the politics, just in case you get lost. Or, God forbid, I get lost. Aside from being a well-known political figure, Ampatua Sr. also had a rather colorful private life. According to one of his daughters, 
This man had six wives and 40 children throughout his lifetime. And apparently, just his first wife alone managed to have 11 kids with him. I am by no means judging. This sounds quite insane slash impressive because I have no idea how one handles so many spouses, whether it's consecutive or concurrent. Then the fact that this guy fathered 40 kids obviously isn't entirely shocking or impossible, but man, that's a lot of children to raise and feed. This is how you build up a clan, I suppose. Have multiple wives, have tons of kids, and have groups of extended families. I'm sure most, if not all, his children supported their father in his political work, and at the same time, I also assume it brought on plenty of benefits for them. Maybe financially, or maybe just being linked to the family name served them well. In any case, imagine how much money or fame you would need to keep this up. And this is why it was important for Ampatua Sr. to have some of his children follow in his footsteps and become politicians as well. Two of his children stood out in particular, Zaldi Ui Ampatuan and Andal Ampatuan Jr. They were both politicians beginning from the 1990s, and while Zaldi served as the fifth governor of the autonomous region in Muslim Mindanao, his brother Andal Ampatuan Jr. served as the mayor for the municipality of Datu Unse, located in Maguindanao. I realize names might be long and confusing, so from now on, I'm going to refer to the father as Ampatuan Sr. and his sons as Zaldi and Ampatuan Jr. Basically, these three men were powerful and heavily involved in politics. So when Ampatuan Sr. had to leave his position as provincial governor, he desperately wanted his son to win the 2010 election and keep the governor spot within the family. It's not that he didn't want to run, it's just that his term was up and he could no longer run for another term. I bet he would have, if he could though. Since Ampatuan Sr. basically ruled the area for many, many years, maybe he expected his son to continue on the family legacy, to get as many votes and to win unopposed like he did so many times. But things were different, as they were getting prepared for the 2010 elections. A politician by the name Esmal Toto Magundadatu decided to run for governor as well, which would make him the opponent. So a little bit about Ismail. He was born in 1968, also to a powerful political family. Unlike Ampatuan Sr., though, he wasn't really interested in politics, and so he left his family to pursue something of his own. He wanted to become a doctor, so he got his degree, met his wife, got married, had kids, etc. In the early 90s, Ismail returned to Maguindanao and met up with the then governor to discuss his future business ventures. The then-governor also happened to be his godfather, so like any parental figure with a political background would do, he talked Ismail into joining the world of politics. Maybe he saw something in him, or maybe he knew it was best for his family. Whatever the reason was, Ismail was eventually persuaded and became a provincial board member. Despite his ties to his own political family, he decided to join the political world on his own terms which must have been very tough and definitely required some courage. He then went on to become the mayor of Buluan, the capital province of Maguindanao, from the late 90s to mid-2000s. 
In the year 2009, he was vice mayor of Buluan at the time, and that is when he decided it was time to do something different. He was going to run against a powerful Ampatuan family to become the next governor of Maguindanao province. I would assume a lot of people were also ready for change, which made running for governor even more necessary for him. What you should also know is that both candidates, Ampatuan Jr. and Ismail, belong to the same political party, the Lakas Christian Muslim Democrats Party. A lot of mediation went on during the time Ismail announced his plans to run, mostly because the Ambatuan clan were very unhappy that someone else dared to challenge their political standing. I don't know what it is about power. It seems like the more some people have it, the hungrier they get for more. It could also be that they have built such a huge legacy and have profited so much from it that letting this go would be seen as their downfall. It's not even that they would be letting it go. They would just be competing with someone else on equal grounds, which is a totally normal thing. Or so you would think. The Ampatuan clan tried to talk Esmael out of running against Ampatuan Jr. Not once, but twice. The first time was during a meeting on July 20th, 2009, and they tried once again in August of 2009. Esmael stuck to his guns and told them, no and that he will not be swayed. He knew the risks as well. Not only was the Ampatuan family extremely powerful, they were also buddies with the then-president, Gloria Macabagal Arroyo. But he decided to follow his advisors anyway, and planned accordingly. In order to become a candidate for the upcoming elections, though, every candidate had to file a Certificate for Candidacy, or a COC. Ismail had plans to do so on November 23 of 2009, but he would not be the one doing the filing. He discussed matters with his team, and he knew that him traveling to the city of Sharif Aguak to file for his candidacy could be very dangerous, as in assassination dangerous. After all, he did receive threats from his opponents, so instead he decided to send others in its place a team of journalists who wanted to document this moment, and his personal team. Due to the threats, though, Esmael then decided it would be wise to send his wife and his two sisters along. I know this might not sound very wise, sending women along when you are fearing an assassination, but in Muslim practice, women are actually viewed as extremely honorable and are generally treated with the utmost respect. Attacking a convoy would be somewhat predictable, but attacking women as well? Now that would be heinous. I guess sending his wife and sisters kind of served as a safety guarantee, where they hoped that the opposing group would not sink so low as to go against the Muslim teachings. But as we know, people can sink quite low. Ismael's convoy left the city of Buluan at around 9 a.m. on November 23, 2009. They were told that the road to Sharif Aguak would be safe, especially since they had women in the convoy, and not to mention 30-plus journalists who were there to cover the story. There were a total of six vehicles on the road that day, four Toyota Grandias, which seats 12 people per van, 
two Mitsubishi Pajeros, which seats seven people per car, and one other Mitsubishi van owned by UNTV, a live news media organization. Things seemed to be going great until they neared the city, and that's when they had to stop at a checkpoint at Sitio Malating. Approximately 100 men and Ampatuan Jr. were there, and they told all the cars to divert to a dirt side road about two and a half kilometers off the main path. You can probably imagine what happens next. These men were not random checkpoint inspectors. They were men that belonged to the Ampatuan clan, and they had orders to stop the Magundadatu convoy from reaching their destination and from filing their certificate for candidacy. To their surprise, though, their target, Ismail, was not present. But that didn't really matter. They knew these people were traveling on behalf of Ismail, so they still had a job to do. For the next several hours, all these people were ordered out of the cars or dragged out, and most of them were shot to death, and many of them were tortured. As if that wasn't horrible enough, two other cars that were not part of the convoy, who just happened to be traveling the same road, were also targeted, because the Ampatuan military men did not know. Three shallow graves had already been dug days prior to the convoy arriving, and everyone who was part of the convoy, regardless of their identity, were shot with high-powered firearms, quote, killing them in a competitive fashion, end quote. As soon as the armed men caught wind that soldiers were on their way to investigate the scene, they hastily tried to bury all the bodies and even the cars, and before they could be seen, they left like nothing ever happened. As you can imagine, it was a terrible scene to stumble upon. Cars riddled with bullet holes, dead bodies all over the place. A total of 58 people lost their lives that day, including six people who were not part of the convoy, but just happened to get caught up in it. I highly doubt they would have let them go anyway, since they were basically witnesses and a liability at this point. Ismael's wife and sisters were all murdered, and his wife, Bai Gigi, had even managed to phone him right before she was killed, telling him that Ampatuan Jr. was there and that he had slapped her. The line was cut out, though, before they could exchange any more words. Some sources say it was a phone call. Some say it was only a text message. Either way, she tried to communicate with her husband. She was then allegedly shot 17 times, including getting shot in the chest and between her legs. A few other women who were part of the convoy were also allegedly raped and then shot between their legs. So much for respecting women, huh? 32 of those murdered that day were journalists, which makes this massacre the single deadliest attack on journalists in the world. Apparently these men that attacked the convoy are extremely cruel. It was never a fair fight to begin with. They ambushed these people. They outnumbered these people. They are military men while the convoy was made up of civilians and journalists. And these military men were armed and prepared while everyone else just had to accept their fate. What makes this even messier in general is not the amount of people involved, but who was involved. You see, the Ampatuan clan had so many people working for them. They even had police officers and other political figures under their grasp. 
It's not just arresting a bunch of wild military guys running around with guns, but some of these men are supposedly those who should be protecting civilians, like the journalists. How do you even come about to convicting or arresting these people? Because of how vile this massacre was, every politician had a duty to stand up and condemn such acts of violence. It seemed like everyone pretty much knew who was behind the attacks, even before any investigation took place. Considering how the then-president was so close to the Mpatuan clan, it must have felt like these people might only receive a slap on the wrist. So what happened afterwards? Two days after the massacre, the Laka CMD party voted to expel three of their most influential figures from their party, Mpatua Sr. and his two sons, Zaldi and Mpatua Jr. On November 26, the pressure was really on for the government to actually do something now, so President Arroyo, despite being best buds with the Mpatua clan, charged Ampatuan Jr. with multiple counts of murder. A week or so later, the patriarch and the other brother, Zaldi, were also arrested and charged with murder. Everyone, of course, denied their involvement, especially Ampatua Jr., who was actually placed at the massacre scene by multiple eyewitnesses. It's really crazy, like, they genuinely thought this would work out for them. Like, they would just kill 58 people and kind of continue the election, get elected, live life normally, and so on? How did they not think that this would backfire on them? That it was so obvious that they were the ones behind it? Especially after sending death threats to Esmael and after trying to talk him out of running for governor? These are probably very rhetorical questions, but still, I cannot help but wonder. So what was Ampatua Jr.'s alibi since he claimed he wasn't there nor was he involved? He said that for the entire week prior to the massacre, he had been traveling in the United States. And although he arrived back in the Philippines on November 22nd, one day before the massacre, he actually went to bed early that day because he had to get up early for a bi-weekly meeting at the municipal hall from 8am to 12pm. His defense team also submitted a ton of meeting minutes from that supposed meeting, trying to prove that he was in fact there, and not out on some dirt road killing people. But seriously, meeting minutes? I can make up an entire catalog of meeting minutes if my life depended on it. It's not really proof that someone was in that meeting. Ampatuan Jr. also pointed the finger at the Moro Islamic Liberation Front claiming that they were probably the ones who did the deed. After these guys were arrested, President Arroyo then placed the entire Mangindanao under a state of martial law for about 10 days. Federal authorities then raided a warehouse and multiple homes and properties owned by the Ampatuan clan, confiscating tons of weapons, ammunition, explosives, voter IDs, and vehicles that looked like they came out of Mad Max Fury Road. This obviously didn't look good for the clan, and it also looked like these people weren't going to be able to get off the hook that easily, especially when the entire nation was watching. This was clearly a huge case involving hundreds of people, and it wasn't going to be resolved in a matter of months. Plus, the people involved were of high political standing. 
there was bound to be a lot of back and forth between the defense team and the prosecutors. In total, it took about a decade for all the court proceedings and trials to be conducted, and even then, it didn't seem like people got the justice they wanted to see. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So of course, Ampatuan Jr. pleaded not guilty. Ampatuan Sr. also pleaded not guilty in 2011. Zaldi was able to come up with an alibi, and so his murder charges were dropped initially, which was quite bewildering to all family members of the victims. During the following months, up to 200 more people who were thought to have been involved in the massacre were arrested, many of them also charged with murder. Many more, though, remain at large, and there didn't seem to be a clear way of finding exactly who took part in the massacre, whether the planning part or the carrying out part. Here's the thing, though. This technically isn't even the first instant where the Ampatuan clan killed others for their own political gain. An investigation was conducted around the entire clan, and they found that this clan could be responsible for up to 250 murders since 2001. This clan was powerful, allegedly had more than 5,000 militiamen and police working for them. Imagine how easy it must be to get people murdered and have it covered up, since the police are technically on your side. Not only were they involved with murder, they were also involved with other cases involving torture, sexual assault, and abductions. The only reason this clan finally got arrested was because they got too cocky, probably thinking that they would never have to face the justice system because of who they were. It was also said that the police, quote, routinely failed to conduct serious investigations, end quote. You don't say. A lot more stuff went on during the 10 years after the massacre. Ampatuan Sr.'s grandson, Anwar Ampatuan, was also arrested for murder in 2012. A lot of people who were once arrested were let go due to lack of evidence or some other reason. There were also a lot of rumors of people taking bribes in order to let the Ampatuan clan off, and that includes eyewitnesses, prosecutors, and even family members. Imagine the audacity to do something like that. Killing someone and go up to their family members and shove money in their face, telling them to, you know, forget about it. Who did decide to take those bribes, though, I cannot say for sure. Then we have those eyewitnesses who were either part of the clan, were involved with the massacre planning, or were there on the day of the massacre. These people decided to speak up and tell the truth. Most witnesses that decided to speak up against the Ampatuan clan and revealed their deadly plans did not back out, although, as you may have guessed, many were killed to keep them quiet. One key witness, Sukarno Badal, said he was at the scene when the massacre took place. Although most men from the clan there did not fire any shots, they did personally aid Ampatuan Jr. in killing everyone from the convoy including dragging people out of the cars and so on. In his testimony, he explained that the weapon Ampatuan Jr. was using was very heavy and required him to stand steady, so he was basically there to help him balance, which is a super weird job. Ampatuan Jr. was also said to have been wearing a white polo shirt that day, and after half an hour of killing people, his shirt was completely stained with blood. 
Part of me wonders if he did this on purpose, wearing a white shirt so he could see all the death and chaos he caused, see the blood on the shirt to remind him of the short-lived victory. Sikarno Badal also claimed that many of the men from the militia were hesitant to step out and help kill, and when one bodyguard tried to talk Ampatuan Jr. from doing any more harm, he himself was gunned down. Well, that's definitely a great way to keep your men scared and in line. Suwaib Jesse Upam was a valuable witness for the prosecution, but before they had a chance to speak, they were mysteriously murdered in mid-2010. Another valuable witness, Ismail Enog, who was one of the drivers from the Mpatuan clan, was also killed under mysterious circumstances. There were many other witnesses who got shot by mysterious gunmen, but I personally don't think it's really all that mysterious. Think about it. Who had the most to gain from shutting these people up? Many of those who were arrested were let go due to lack of concrete evidence, and unfortunately, there were many more others who were thought to be involved but could not be tracked down. Those who were on the police's radar either got the hell out or sought refuge in other groups, abandoning their ties with the Mbatuan clan completely. I personally believe it would be impossible to find everybody involved, because this entire planning took four months. Think of all the people who either participated in the planning, knew about it, or were there at the scene of the massacre. That must be hundreds of people. And imagine those who probably didn't know, but yet decided to help those who were involved escape the police. That's definitely aiding a criminal, and could probably land them in jail. It's unfortunate, but that's how things tend to be. Unless everyone stands up and owns their shit, then I don't see how family and friends of the victims will ever get absolute justice. In the year 2015, Ampatuan Sr. and Ampatuan Jr. both were denied bail because there was just too much concrete evidence linking them to the planning and the execution of the massacre. The audacity, though, to not just plead not guilty, but then to try to get bail. But then again, the universe works in mysterious ways. Ampatuan Sr. died in July of 2015 due to kidney failure. Up until his death, he continued to declare his innocence. Although I assume his death wasn't unwelcomed, it did sort of take away from all the crimes that he committed. And honestly, it probably was a far better death than the way those 58 people died. When President Rodrigo Duterte became president, he promised the family members of the victims that he would find ways to get them justice. And not just that, he would do it as quickly as possible and also provide them financial support. On December 19, 2019, during a special court session, both Ampatuan Jr. and Zaldi were convicted of 57 counts of murder, and both were sentenced to 40 years in prison. Does that surprise you? I am and am not surprised, partly because 40 years is very little if you think of the crime they committed, and I would have honestly expected the death penalty for them. But then again, they probably had a strong-as-hell defense team and were also well-known political figures, so I guess that could be why. While Ampatuan Jr. was literally placed at the scene of the massacre, Zaldi was only accused of taking part in the planning and organization. But still, he knew what was going to happen and he willingly took part in it. 
Zaldi and Patuan also received a three-hour jail pass when he said he wanted to attend his daughter's wedding in 2017. Are you kidding me? You can imagine the outrage from the public. Seeing this guy who planned and murdered 58 people laughing and dancing with his daughter? 28 other police officers who were accused of partaking in the planning and murders were also sentenced to 40 years in prison. 15 others received sentences varying from 6 to 10 years, and 55 others were acquitted. Eight other accused members died before this special court session, and since Sampatuan Sr. had been long dead by 2019, I guess he will never be convicted. Let's jump back a bit and talk about the victims and their families now. I would imagine Ismael Magundadatu might have felt some sort of survivor's guilt, sending his convoy to file his candidacy certificate, only to have them all end up dead. But that did not deter him from his main mission, and honestly, if he had stopped there, it would have all been for nothing. Four days after the massacre, he traveled to the city himself and filed for candidacy. Eventually, he won the election and would end up serving for nine years as governor. As for the journalists, this was definitely labeled as the single most deadly attack on journalists worldwide, placing the Philippines as one of the most dangerous countries for journalists right after Iraq. Family and friends of the victims reported incidents of receiving threats and bribes amounting to millions of pesos. But this was not what they wanted. They wanted justice. As for the final verdict, many family members accepted it and were happy about the main suspects being convicted. But they were also disappointed that many other Ampatuan family members were not convicted or sentenced. The Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch's Asia Division, Phil Robertson, stated that, quote, The families of Maguindanao and witnesses will be at risk so long as suspects remain free, end quote and I cannot agree more. Some may have found it in their heart to forgive and let go, but I wouldn't blame them if they continue to feel anger and disappointment. Ismail was quoted as saying that while he could manage to forgive those responsible, quote, but still, we will look for justice. We can let it go, but we need justice, end quote. Sometimes I wonder, what exactly is the correct form of justice? What kind of outcome would make everyone happy? So there you have it. The extremely inhumane Maguindanao massacre that left 58 innocent civilians dead. The official number is 58, but the truth is one journalist's body has never been recovered. The Ampatuan clan rose to power and dominance through the use of violence and intimidation, and when someone showed up that even mildly threatened their political standing... They lost their shit and killed everyone. It's incredible really knowing how far some people would go to secure power, completely disregarding anybody else's life. If you're interested in hearing and learning more about this, History Asia has a documentary on the Maguindanao Massacre called The Maguindanao Massacre. This was released in 2010 though, so it may not be completely up to date with the trials, but it's definitely something to watch if you want to learn more about the massacre itself. My heart goes out to those who lost their lives in the massacre, and of course, for their family members and friends. 
We see terrible things on the news all the time, hear it on podcasts, and watch it on documentaries. But never do we really imagine having to go through it personally. I hope I have covered this case fairly, and excuse my random outburst throughout the episode, but I really just couldn't help myself. There is obviously a lot more to this case, including all the people involved and the details surrounding the 10-year trial. Hopefully this was a decent introduction, and thank you all for bringing this case to my attention, and of course, for tuning in. Please stay safe, don't be a power-hungry asshole, and treat others with kindness. Till next time. And before I go, I would like to thank Waters 21 for their review. I know this is Shane Waters, and Shane has two podcasts that are really intriguing. One is about history called Hometown History, and another one is called Foul Play, which is centered around true crime. If any of you are interested in history and true crime, which I'm assuming you are since you're listening to me, then I highly suggest you give his podcasts a chance. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.